0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. First of all, great to be here. Very nice to be here uh, with all of you. Uh, I'm Bill Wartman, if you did not know me. Uh, I teach at Samford part-time in classical studies, like classics, Greek and Latin, um, rather than Shakespeare. Well, actually, I do teach great books as well, so I teach some Shakespeare and stuff, too. Uh, Basically I teach all across history. How's that any anyone you're supposed to have read? You know, what CS Lewis said a classic is a work that everyone wants to have read and no one wants to read (laughs) So uh, I teach those books Uh, And then uh, and then I run ipub uh, President of ipub the Institute. It's not a pub actually Uh, It's the Institute for the public understanding of the Bible which, is, uh, which um, is supposed to sound like a pub, though, because our mission is to promote meaningful conversation about the Bible with the non-believing. So most of the time I spend in, in conversation with people who completely reject everything I believe and probably what most of uh, you believe. Uh, and so that is an interesting experience. But then I was a skeptic. Yes, you have a question? Is this the website, the iPub? iPub.org, yeah, iPub.org. And uh, so I was myself irreligious growing up. It was a secular home, mostly, when I was growing up. And it was in Minnesota. I should have just started with that. And then that would have, uh, Minneapolis. And then, uh, so I was pretty um, just an atheist, you know, in high school and stuff. And then I converted to Christianity in university uh, and went the opposite direction from where probably many young people nowadays are struggling, uh, tend to float along with the riptides in the culture, which are becoming more and more secular, as I hope that doesn't surprise you to hear that. And so uh, I decided uh, some, a few years back that um, I would start doing some work, more focused on uh, trying to have real conversations with people who don't believe. Uh, one of my good friends is an atheist, a skeptic, who grew up evangelical, evangelical Christian, and now is an atheist, a deconverted, in his uh, mid to upper 20s while he was leading a Bible study. He decided he didn't believe any of it anymore and that was the end of it and now lives in Nashville. Uh, Drew and uh, he and I decided to do a podcast together called The Divide where we talk about the issues that divide us. We interview, bring one other person into the conversation and talk Talk to them, mostly skeptics and atheists, non-believing, um, but some also Christians we've talked to, Muslims, uh, rabbis, and so on. And uh, then we go to s- some atheist conventions. We usually go every year to the atheist conventions, if you didn't know such things existed. Uh, so we were in Atlanta uh, this spring. Um, Atlanta, you know, the southeast is, uh, is just this little corner of the country, that uh, the um, atheist world is strategically trying to break the will of. That's, I get their emails and know all the presidents of the Secular Student Alliance, the American Atheists, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and so on. I'm not feeding you, I'm not trying to exaggerate. I'm telling you they tell me that without any hesitation or apologies that they're trying to target. We're attack on on the map down here and so they had their atheist convention in Atlanta, uh, and uh, we went over there, and we're obviously the only Christians, only ones there, uh, and have lots of good conversations and interviews, and we learn a lot of things about the, community, the atheist communities over the last number of years. And so what we're going to be doing here in this uh, little workshop, I call it a workshop. You know what that means, you have to work, (laughs) you see. I expect you to have to to do some thinking and uh, talking, so uh, I'll have a lot of questions for you. And uh, there are uh, some, of course, in these contexts who are verbal thoroughbreds, or they're the verbal hares, and there's others that are the verbal tortoises, you know. Uh, And so the hares have to kind of lay back a little bit uh, and let some other people say some things, and then the tortoises have to, you know, pick up the speed a little, you know, take off the shell and get moving. Yeah. Do you also address the progressive Christianity? Uh, I wouldn't say that it's really a center of our focus, meaning like we're talking to ma- mainly skeptics and people who don't think any of this book is true or very little of it is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the sort of progressive side of Christianity you're asking about, right? Yes. Uh I- I mean I'm more talking to people who yeah just like we we did a, we did a video this we put out a video a couple days ago uh which already has a couple thousand views by the way it's very good uh huh oh hell yeah 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 it's on it's on hell uh so uh, uh, we started doing this where um because people will privately when they entertain doubts you know they go to the internet just like for every other private issue you know uh if you're if you're looking well, how? Well, what do these blue pills do? I mean, you're not gonna go talk to your neighbor, maybe. You know, you're gonna go on the internet privately, so the theory runs, uh, and then you can look something up privately. You know, so people have private doubts about their Christian faith, particularly young people you know, along the way, understandably. It's understandable to question uh, what the nature of reality is and is your outlook you grew up with true? And that's normal, it's natural, it's good. Uh, and so they go to the YouTube or whatever to look. And they find you know followings bigger than CNN it turns out that are uh, on YouTube you know it's 25 year olds who have half a million followers uh, and they produce videos often interviewing experts it's become a thing now where they go to the biblical scholars because they know that has some teeth and of course they pick the biblical scholars that are so-called critical scholars the ones who Uh, Grew up Christian often and got interested in the Bible. Went to school uh, like Bart Ehrman, very famous. uh, Went to Moody Bible Institute and then Princeton Theological Seminary, and then became an atheist, and is now a lifelong uh, devoted himself, you know, to uh, to debunking Christianity essentially. And I'm not mean that to to uh, I'm not I don't think I'm exaggerating there either. Just to be clear, I think he's more or less picked the major doctrines of the faith and. I think he genuinely doesn't believe this stuff, and genuinely thinks even Christians could be helped by some biblical scholarship. I agree with him. You know, it's, as you have heard scholars talk, and you learn things you otherwise wouldn't know. This is totally fine. Uh, but he's generally providing a view which is pretty antithetical to the traditional Christian beliefs. And uh, now, Christians, all of us need refining but that's different from probably where he is. So he wrote a book on hell called Heaven and Hell, uh, something about Christian beliefs about the afterlife. It's mainly on hell, in which he surveys history, the Greek literature, the Babylonian literature, all the stuff you just can't, can't wait to read before bedtime. And, uh, and then he tells you that uh, Jesus, or excuse me, that the Old Testament had no such concept of hell. Uh, that came from the Greeks, the Greek mythologists. And then uh, Jesus came along and uh, adopted some of those beliefs, but didn't really teach hell the way you hear. You know, modern Christians, these bad, bad people who uh, disrupt our political world, uh, they are not, you know, um, uh, their ideas that they say about hell are all totally wrong and Jesus didn't believe any of them. Jesus thought uh, you just get annihilated upon death and that's the end of you, there is no survival. Of you after death, and so he gets interviewed, and uh, you can imagine young people by the hundreds of thousands, literally, uh, finding these videos when they're looking for answers, and they hear this for the first time and think, well, this guy's a biblical scholar and seems sensible, and he says he's not trying to destroy your faith. That must be, must mean he's trustworthy. Is that right? Because he says he's not interested in, in that, Uh, and uh, and then they do that. So. uh, we do a video that responds to it and try to explain where there's some points of agreement and some things that are really big disagreements, like I think he's wrong about what Jesus thought. But then that raises the question, what what did Jesus really teach on this topic? And of course, we as Christians sometimes find ourselves maybe not so confident if we're pushed on that either of exactly what do we think? And that's why we uh, get together like this. And have some discussion. So uh, that's some work—the kind of work I guess we're mainly doing. If that's—if beware of asking a question and then getting a really long answer. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to start in the Gospel of John, and chapter twenty. Because uh, the question we have before us—I'm going to teach the next few Sundays if you're around—is uh, going to be: um, how, What how, in what ways does the Gospel of John actually challenge unbelief? And I have to tell you here, as somebody who was formerly an unbeliever, that I feel, this is very, I feel like I can be very honest and just tell you, you know, I, I feel no need to pretend about reading Scripture. I want the truth. In what ways does John actually challenge unbelief? And I'm not interested in things that make us feel good. I want to know the truth. In what substantive ways is the Gospel of John, actually challenge a skeptic in their unbelief? Why should they feel that rug pulled just a little of discomfort? That maybe their skepticism and unbelief isn't quite so warranted, or maybe they shouldn't be quite so confident as they thought. That's the question that we're taking up. Uh, and uh, so we're going to look at the, uh, today the purpose of the book, Uh, And uh, it raises a very, very big question about what exactly belief is. Uh, Most of us have phones, and if you have a phone, you have a Bible, or you can have a Bible for free. So uh, you might find it very helpful to follow along. We'll look at a couple things, and I'll be asking questions, and I'm going to give you a little cheating advice in advance. All right? When I ask my questions, the answers are right here in the text. So... It'll be, it'll be a lot easier if you can read it, unless you memorize things immediately on hearing them, and then you don't have to look at it. But just to, just to help you uh, get, feel some confidence. You know, as a, didn't you hate it when teachers ask questions and you had no idea where to go for the answers? Uh, I was already not really paying attention anyway, that didn't help. So I'm telling you, you can find success in this room by simply having it out. And when asked a question, he did say the answer's Going to be right in front of, right under my nose here, you know. So that would be a good, good way to start. All right, so uh, let's look at uh, chapter twenty and verse uh, thirty and thirty-one. I think it is. I'm sorry, I brought a a reader's edition of uh, the Bible, by the way. If you haven't seen this, the ESV puts these out, the English Standard Version, and uh, so it doesn't have verses. It has chapters. It marks the chapters, but that's it. So it's just in paragraphs, and it's a very uh, nice way to read the Bible. Because sometimes you read it in, with, a ver- with verses and you, you sort of, your brain kind of follows the verses rather than follow the storyline. So I, I highly recommend it as a way of reading. Problem is I don't have any verses in front of me, and I normally wouldn't do this where I may have to ask you like what verses are where. But uh, I've reached a point in life where I'm in rebellion against reading glasses. So uh, this is the largest print text I had at home, so that's where we're at. Verse 30, I think it is. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And just to clear up the word Christ, of course, means... You want to know what this means? Messiah, Savior or Messiah? Messiah. Yes, yeah, Messiah, it's the equivalent of the, the word Messiah. It means anointed. The word Mashiach in Hebrew, Messiah, means anointed one, Hamashiach, the anointed one. And we all know Christ gives us the English word christen. So it's an easy way to remember that christen, Christ, means to anoint. And therefore, he is the anointed one, the, the one who is appointed to be the deliverer, ruler of Israel like King David. All right so my question then my first question and I'm going to remind you just one more time well I don't even need to just by saying that I think you know it. what's the purpose of the book what's the actual aim if I limited you to one word convince believe, convince. believe. purpose purpose. Mm-hmm. so you know those aren't all the same things I think you know. You understand, right? All right. And some of you picked words actually from the verse, and some of you didn't. (laughs) So, my recommendation would be to find a word in the verses. What is the ultimate goal? Salvation, belief, to know. We haven't actually... So, I would not want to bring up anything to do with ninth ninth grade grammar, for sure, but... um, When you talk about the goal, the end, so to speak, of something, the end of it, the goal of it, you need to look at the end. Life. Ah, there we go. Life. That's the very end, isn't it, of the statement. Look at the last statement here. That uh, by believing you may have life. The belief... It was a very, very good answer. Let me commend those of you that found it. Actually, all the answers were good. But, you know, belief was a very good answer. It just wasn't quite the finish line. Belief was a means to something bigger. And that bigger thing was life. Later today, we're taking our daughter to Jenny's ice cream. I feel truly pity for you if you have not discovered Jenny's ice cream over by, uh, what is it, in Pepper Place good stuff. I hope it's still open. Uh, We're taking her there today, and I can tell you right now, she has no interest in my truck. You see, the truck itself, to her, eh, it's just the means to get to Jenny's ice cream. (laughs) It's the ice cream that fills her imagination and her excitement. She can't wait to get the ice cream. Well, she's 16 now, so she's not a little kid anymore, but I think, actually, I may be more interested. You know how when you're an adult, you suggest things that really you want and try to pass them off as a treat for the kids because it's what you want? So that's really what's happening. Uh, But uh, the car, the truck, is just the means to get there. Life is the thing. John's goal for the reader is to have life. That's his goal, that you who read the book, who listen to the book, may obtain life, may enter into life. A bit weird thing to say to somebody who's reading the book, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you propped a book in front of a corpse, how it would go. I don't think they could read very well. The assumption is if you can read the statement, you already have life, do you know? Don't you already have life? What, did he, what does he mean then? He wants you to have life because after all, the very listening to the, to the statement would imply you already had life. So what could he mean then? He certainly doesn't mean the life you already have. That would make no sense. He must be talking about some other kind of life. I like how simple the Bible is. This, I can take all this in, can't you? What is that life he's talking about? How would you describe it? Well, he does describe it. How does he describe it? It's in, the answer's in the, the verse. In, those, in these verses, there's an answer. How does he describe this life? Life in his name. Not just any old life. Life in his name. Now I have to ask you, what does that mean? And here the answer is not just right there spelled out. Here the answer comes from the way he's talked about life throughout the whole book. We're at the end of the book, of course. He's talked about life quite a bit in the book. So what does he mean then? I mean, life in his name, at the very least, we're talking about the name of Jesus. At the very least, I think we could conclude that this life is a life which is inseparable from Jesus, if it's in his name, you know I uh, I fancy I own a house. I don't, of course, quite own the whole thing, as you know, unfortunately. <laughs> but let's just say I own the house, you know. Well, I own a car. It's in my name. I've made the point about a hundred times to the boys, off and on through the years when they've had to borrow the truck. So it's in my name. You know what that means. You can't take it and treat it as if it doesn't belong and originate and is in the control of me, (laughs) right? It comes from me. It's mine. So that would mean the life that is in his name is a life that comes from him. It's a life he imparts to us. Now, this life I already had, The life you have from the time you're a baby is a life which was imparted by your parents. They shared their life with you. And that means the kind of life you get is their life, which is good (laughs) and bad, right? You get all of it, both of them. So, uh, the life is imparted from them, and therefore it shares in their their life, human life. The life that comes from God has no bad mixed into it. It doesn't have, you know, the traits of that side of the family. It's all good. And, of course, being it's God's direct life, What else does it imply that's different from the life I have as a human baby growing up? It's a life that doesn't end (laughs) in death. Death in taxes. Certainty. The life of God is eternal. Not just that it goes on and on. It's timeless. It's not just as people have said already in criticism of our video, they talk about being punished you know, for 10,000 years. Well, there's no 10,000 years in a timeless world, is there? The idea of this world, we're a temporal world. If you know anything about Einstein, it's a space-time fabric that we live in. The two are interwoven. You cannot separate them, and they affect one another. But the world of God is timeless, spaceless, and none of us really know quite what that's like. But it isn't 10,000 years, that much we know. So it partakes of the life of God, his values, and so on. The quality, it's not a quantity thing, how long life is, it's a quality of life, to have the life of God. And yes, one of its qualities is that it's timeless, but it's not just that. It has quality. And we kind of get a taste for that, you know. You see a grandfather clock working for 200 years. It doesn't just tell you it has a timelessness to it, no no pun intended, but it also means it had quality. There was something about it that made it that makes it much more valuable in the world. So the values of God's life, all this anyway, is about the life. That's the goal. John wants the reader to enter into a new life. And he, there are different metaphors, being born from above, born again, Uh, partaking of bread which you eat and never hunger again, drinking water that makes you never thirst. There's all sorts of metaphors that Jesus uses in the book to describe this life. Don't confuse the metaphors for what they are in reality. So it's this life that is the goal. Now, how or on what terms does God impart this life? And now the answer is right in front of us. What triggers this life, this impartation of life? When does God gift people with this life according to one word? Believe. Believe. right? By believing. He first says that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then, just to make sure you don't miss the point, very good writer, very good teacher, John says, and so that in the believing you may have life. That's the trigger. That's the key, is believing. Believe, and then that leads to life. Now, uh, you believe, of course, not just any old thing. Some people talk about belief, you know, we just had a lot of belief. That's why we won the national championship. (laughs) Georgia Georgia had a lot of belief this last year. Florida and Alabama, not so much. They lost, they're losers. (laughs) I say that as an Alabama fan, just to be clear. So it's not just belief. Nowadays people talk about, well, that's your belief, you know, as if that's an automatic, earns automatic respect. You can believe all sorts of stupid things and reckless things and evil things. Belief isn't a virtue just on its own terms. It's whom that belief is in or what that belief is in that ultimately matters as as to its virtue. So uh, that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the belief. You can't come along and say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe. I have belief. It's very important to have belief. What do you think about Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I agree with him. Sometimes I don't. You've just defined yourself out of Christianity. I didn't invent, you know, I didn't invent Christianity. I say it to atheists about a thousand times a year. I didn't invent Christianity, nor did anybody living today. It's not for us to define what Christianity is. It's been defined for us by the apostles chosen and named, by the way, apostles. Jesus actually himself titled the group of 12 as apostles that wasn't just the evangelists who gave them this they didn't give themselves this title the word apostle means nothing to us unfortunately they translated the word apostolos as apostle not very helpful transliteration is it what is an apostle it just means an ambassador that's what it means and we all know if you're in cairo i had a friend a good friend of mine who lived in Cairo for many years, worked for the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador. And if the U.S. ambassador tells the leadership of Cairo what the policy of the United States is, you can bank on their words as representing the government of the United States. That's the role of the ambassador. So the apostles were ambassadors, chosen and named by Jesus. And then they went and wrote a bunch of books so it's not for me to change what they wrote. I mean, you can change, you can do whatever you want, of course, in this world in one sense, but then don't call it Christianity. You know, Someone says, I'm a Platonist. Not many people say that nowadays, do they? Uh, well, there's some. They follow the teachings of Plato. They're called Platonists. There are also Aristotelians. I'll let you guess what they are. <laughs> but if I talk to an Aristotelian, I talk to him occasionally in my world, and they say, yeah, I totally reject most of what Aristotle taught. Why would, you, why would you call yourself an Aristotelian on your Twitter handle? It makes no sense, right? Oh, I totally reject the Constitution of the United States, the American Declaration of, of, of Independence, and basically the whole history of America. Oh, but I'm an American. I mean, you could be technically still legally. What would be the point? I really love Fiji. That's a constitution I can get behind, like uh, Truman, you know, in the Truman Show. Head to Fiji. Okay, then go to Fiji. So uh, as a general rule then, uh, I think a final rule as well, uh, it's not for us to define what Christianity is uh, here. So what causes this belief according to these verses? What brings about this belief? Mm, it's written, uh, yes, be a little more specific, David. So, uh, what do they say? Warm, you're getting warmer. What is that? It says it very specifically. Hmm. It's right in the text. I might have mentioned that before. <laughs> <laughs> the Father has to draw the person to Christ. Mm, excellent. I'm the, oh, yeah. yeah. the way, the truth, and the life, and the one to me. Yes, excellent. So you have to be drawn to the person. And how does John put that here exactly? What is the, if I list, if I forced you to pick one word. The Son of God. What is it that brings you to belief according to these words? It says that Jesus did many miracles. And so what would be the one word you'd pick? The signs. the signs, yes. There were many other signs Jesus did. But these I have written for you so that you may believe. You see the connection? The signs, the account of the signs, which is the main body of the book, the narrative of the book, these select events that John tells you, and the conversations that occur at those events are what are designed by John to bring you to belief. If you don't believe, John's telling you how to come to believe by pondering the account of these Signs. Now, uh, what is a sign? And here the answer isn't quite in the text. Yeah. Uh, If I were to go to uh, the back of a little donkey, the restaurant, you know, uh, sometimes they put the names of the restrooms in languages and I don't understand. If it's in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, I'm safe. (laughs) Even some English. But put it in uh, other languages Spanish or whatever you know they have these words like I don't know what's a caballero <laughs> and I don't like to guess in these moments it's not very comfortable to guess <laughs> you know so what I prefer it's really nice if they also have a, a little image there yes yeah, so one little sign has the picture of a, of a dude and the other one has a dude with a skirt all right, two little stick figures, one with a skirt, one without a skirt. Uh, these are olden days, I'm old-fashioned, you know. This is the way it used to be. <laughs> and uh, that sign is what? Symbolic. Thank you. It's a symbol of a reality that lies behind the door, which you cannot see. And it's very important you get the sign right, that it depicts accurately what the reality is behind the door. You see, we have a veil, so to speak, that separates our world from God's world. We don't just see God or see his world, but he has provided signs that we might come to understand what's behind the door. And that's what John says his account is about is disclosing the reality behind the door in terms that would make sense to us here on our side of the door. So um, that's what the signs are. And of course the manner in which they lead to belief is that they are at the very least evidence of what the reality is on the other side of the door. They are a witness, as John will say many times in his book. Jesus will say it. John the baptizer will say it. It's a witness. It's a testimony to a reality. Now, I don't know about how belief works for you, but I choose to believe things that are true. If I said to you, uh, oh, I learned a great lie today, you ought to believe it. It wouldn't even make sense like it. I have this falsehood. I think you would really profit from it. You should believe it. The very definition, the very concept rather, the notion of belief, means the things we judge to be true we accept. That The belief is the acceptance part, the commitment part. We judge it to be true and we commit ourselves to it. If you say you're going to meet me at noon at uh, Chewie's for lunch, the belief part is accepting the truth of the commitment you've made. If I didn't trust the truth of what you said, I might say, oh, Larry, he's always 15 minutes late. You know, I got time to spare. I don't need to be there at 12 o'clock. You see, if, the, if I don't judge it to be true, there's no point in committing myself to it. That's what belief is is this commitment to something we judge to be true, and the signs are evidence of the truth of this claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then finally, um, uh, the question of belief. I've just summed it up in very simple terms but I've had many, many conversations enough to know that people get this twisted into all sorts of funny shapes, like those little balloon things, you know, at the fair. They get belief sort of confused in their head. What exactly does the Bible mean by belief? Well, yes, it's a general sense. It's a commitment to what we judge to be true. But then people make, add all sorts of funny things into it and get confused. But then it's not for me to define, is it, what this belief thing is. If it's the trigger that leads to eternal life, we better get that right. And thankfully, we don't have to rely on me. (laughs) I get most things wrong when left to myself, to be honest. Sometimes painfully so. (laughs) But John has recorded some stories. for us. One particular one in the fourth chapter of this gospel that is intended to teach us exactly what belief is and what it isn't. Now it's nice to survey the Bible and find some statements about belief, but it's really helpful when you land on a story whose primary function is to teach us what belief is and what it isn't so next week we'll get to that story the story of the healing of the son of the royal official at the end of chapter four if you want to take five minutes and read it and come back no obligation of course but if you wanted to (laughs) you would uh, be prepared to answer some questions i have a lot of questions and the answers (laughs) will be in the story okay so uh, we'll be looking at that next week Uh, and then uh, we'll take a Sunday to look at sort of in general terms a book that's 2,000 years old (laughs) why should I take it seriously at all how do I know that it's just not all fiction or mythology or something and there I'm gonna have to go outside the Bible a little bit just a little I'll spend most of the time in the book itself in John but I would like to say a few things about sort of the broader scholarly world uh, because that you eventually confront those kind of things. Uh, but we'll mainly be talking about what John has to say against the critics. You didn't think God was taken aback by modern critics, did you? He isn't the least bit challenged, believe me, by critics from 2022. <laughs> Clever though, many of them are in good and bad ways. And then uh, we'll spend the final Sunday talking about uh, the um, miracle, one of the signs, the one where Jesus turned water into wine. All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you. We bow our heads and worship the Savior, the Messiah, the one who went out as our champion like David and slew Goliath, death itself, at the cross and was raised from the dead, that we might have an eternal hope that death would not overwhelm us, that we would know there is a life we can enter into now that will continue and abide and remain timelessly in your presence. We thank you for that peace. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you for these sacred writings, and we pray for help by your Spirit to understand these things, and for those here in the room, which probably includes all of us at one point or another, who have a doubt, entertained, that these writings would come back in full force, and we would hear your voice through them, and hear the truth, and that we might be anchored in it so that by believing it, we might have life in the name of the Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.